You know, that, what's so striking about the songs we just sang is the God who holds time in his hands, who wraps himself in the light, the name above all names. That's the same God who gave all of himself up for us. Is that, like, is that not amazing? <laughs> and it's in result, like we just sang, he gave it all and all to him we owe. And so as we were singing, I just, this psalm struck me. This is Psalm 115. It says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. When our lives are completely given away to him, when we have tasted of his love and faithfulness and in return trust him with our lives, that's, that we find exactly what we were designed for. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Some of you are like, okay. <laughs> but but that, just, that just struck me. And even as, before I, I just jump right in, we're going to jump right back into the Gospel of Mark this morning. I just want to take a moment and pray again. Um, this time pray that the Lord would allow our hearts to rest and trust in who he is. And rest in the fact that, yeah, we can hand our whole lives over to him. So, Lord, in, as we just sung of your greatness, we just sung that you are the name above all names. We just declared that you are the one, the great God over all things, gave your all for us. What response have we other than to give all of ourselves back to you? You are so worthy. You are so trustworthy. And so, Lord, we, all of ourselves, we commit to you again. Forgive me, Lord, when I try to grip and grab control back of my life thinking that you don't see it, you don't care about it, or maybe I can do it better than you. Teach me how to find my freedom in a surrendered life to you. And Lord, as a church together, we also want to lift up this whole Delta variant thing going on right now. Lord, we just declared your greatness. We know that you're the name above all names. And so, Lord, we hand that situation over to you and say, Lord, will you, will you deal with it? Will you protect us? Will you surround your arms around us and all those who are sick right now? Will you heal them? All those who are vulnerable, Father, will you surround them? And Lord, will you continue to lead us as we trust you? In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. 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 Well, it is always a privilege uh, to open up God's word with you guys. And we are doing that, continuing our trek through the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we find in the New Testament. And we've been in Mark since April. So for the last several months, we've been observing Jesus and imagining ourselves in the shoes of those following him, even imagining Jesus saying to us, follow me. And so the main question we've been asking of the last months and weeks is, well, okay, what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus today? You know, all of us coming in here, or those watching online, we all come from very different 
stories, backgrounds. Some of you grew up in this church, but most of you did not. Right? We all come at Jesus and faith and church from all these different angles. But the reason why we're coming back to Mark is while we thank God for our stories up to this point, like where is Jesus leading us together today? And that's why Mark has been so important for us. Because it's been leading us back to these basic questions of, well, what does it mean to know Jesus? To be like him. To do what he did. It, I mean, that is the essence of what a Christian is. Christian means little Christ. And to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. Learning to love him, be like him, and do what he did. And so that's why we've been in Mark. And we've been taking our sweet time through it. And as we continue in Mark, now we're starting in this series to get a little inch closer to the end of this gospel. And if you've been joining us the last few weeks, I hope you've noticed... How as we are in this gospel, do you feel the tension getting a little bit thicker? Like the tension at this point in Mark chapter 12, where we are today, is like the humidity in Florida. It's about that thick, right? Especially between Jesus and the religious leaders. And by Mark 12... It's getting so thick that Jesus is getting it from every side. you got the theologically conservative Pharisees coming at him from this way. The theologically liberal Sadducees coming at him from this way. Both trying to trip him up. But all of their attacks and challenges stop at the moment when Jesus gives them the greatest command. And somebody asks him, well, Jesus, what is the greatest command? Trying to test them. And he says this. Maybe some of you can even quote it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Mark says at that moment, all the challenges were coming at him, but now silence. He says no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, Pastor Matt did a great job laying that out for us last week, making it clear that Jesus is saying everything about following him, the ultimate end goal, he's always leading us toward this goal that we might love God with everything we are and love others. But my question in that is like, well, what do you mean by love, Jesus? Right? Like, love is just kind of thrown around there in the midst of our culture. It's like, it's like everybody just assumes it's some feeling, but, but I would love a definition here, Right? But Jesus gives us something even better than a definition, an example. You see, if he gave us a definition, I would be tempted to take that definition, run away from him, and try to figure out how to do it on my own. But instead, Jesus was the very embodiment of divine love. And he says that in following him, and watching him and getting to know him, then do we learn what love actually is and we learn to then reflect it and give it out both to God and to others. See, to follow Jesus is to know his love for us, love him in return with all that we are, and then allow his love to transform our motivations and our every actions. It involves our whole selves for our whole lives. But even though... 
Those words of Jesus silence the religious leaders on the spot. He's not done with them. (laughs) And a few verses down, which is our passage we're going to look at today, he's going to explain why these religious leaders cannot follow the great command, nor him. Why is it that the quote-unquote Bible scholars of Jesus' day could not see God when he was right in front of them? How is it that their heads could be so full of knowledge, yet their hearts so hard? And that's exactly what we're going to look at today, but I want (laughs) to... be honest here. I've learned in reading the Gospels that anytime Jesus addresses the religious people, I should probably perk up. I mean, right? Like, if the Bible experts can miss it, (laughs) you better believe I can too. And we all can. And so the passage we're about to look at today, Jesus is going to answer two questions. This is where we're going. This is our roadmap today. Two questions. First, how is it that people can go to church every Sunday, know so much Bible, even lead ministries, yet fail to fulfill the great command and follow Jesus? And two, if we are to learn to love like Jesus loves God and others, what is the one thing necessary? How do we often get sidetracked, number one? Number two, what is the one thing necessary? So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 38 this morning. Now, if you want to open one of the blue Bibles in front of you, we're on page 825. How about that? Making it easy for you here. 825. We're going to be Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 38. And just like David said earlier, if you don't have a Bible at home, then take one of these. This is our gift to you. Take the Pewback Bible in front of you, home, and I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible and you're not sure where to start, start in the Gospel of Mark. That's where we are as a church. Start reading it from the beginning. Maybe even go back through and listen to some of the sermons we've preached on it so that you can get to know God's Word yourself. All right? But today we are in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 to 44. If you guys will please stand while I read out loud. Mark 12, 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. If you could repeat after me and say, God, open my heart, open my mind, show me how to love like you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you. So let's get back to question one. As the tension grows thick in the Gospel of Mark, as we know the cross is coming soon, why is it that the Bible experts in Jesus' day could totally miss God when he was standing right in front of them? Why were, could, how is it that our heads can be so full of Bible knowledge, yet our hearts so cold? And how is it that even church-going, ministry-leading, book-writing Christians can miss it too? See, when we are focused on the praise of people, power or possessions, we will never be free to love God or others like Jesus. Now, most of Mark 12 with the attack of the religious leaders on Jesus, Jesus has been playing the defense. But now, at this point in the chapter, he turns and plays offense. And he says straight up, with the religious leaders listening, watch out for the teachers of the law. Now, a little background is necessary here to understand who these teachers were. Because in first century Israel... Everything about the life of a Jewish man and woman revolved around two things. The temple in Jerusalem and the word of God. Predominantly the law and the prophets. The law spoke to the first five books of our Bible. So the way they lived, how they ate, what they, how they, their holidays, everything revolved around God's word and the temple. And who is it that got to interpret God's word for the people? The teachers of the law or the scribes. You'll hear me use those two words interchangeably, teachers of the law and scribes. But a little background on those guys. Most likely, in order to be a scribe, when you were a little kid, you showed yourself to be the wicked smart kid in class, right? Like, you, you were the cream of the crop. You stood out above everybody else. And so early on, you were cherry-picked and then taught to study and memorize God's Word. And so these teachers, these scribes, they gave their whole lives to read Scripture, memorize it, and read the volumes of interpretations given by teachers before them so that one day these scribes or teachers would be prepared to interpret the law and the ways of God for the people of God too. So think about it. If the life of these people revolved around God's word and the scribes or teachers were those who interpreted God's word, they were viewed as a pretty big deal, right? Pretty big deal. I mean, their talent and intelligence were outstanding. So God must have a special calling on these guys and the people treated the scribes in that way. So scribes in that day typically walked around in public with these long white linen robes declaring their purity and importance. When they stepped into the marketplaces, it was expected that most people had to stop and, and, and rise and greet them with titles like rabbi, father, master. And if you were a wealthy man and you threw a party, it was a big honor 
to have a scribe or teacher of the law come to your party. And you might even give them your mom's seat. Now, scribes weren't allowed to be paid for what they did. But they made up for it just fine because it was considered meritorious. Like, you got a credit on your account with God if you provided hospitality or provision for some of these teachers of the law. And when they prayed, oh, when they prayed, it was considered the very words of God himself. Right? So these guys were honored and venerated as the champions of godliness, the very living picture of what it means to please God. But what does Jesus say? Watch out! (laughs) Is that not opposite of everything their culture said? But when he says watch out here, Jesus wasn't saying be paranoid about them. But what he is saying, he says, watch out that you do not follow them, that you do not follow. Take on their example that you do not become like them. Why? Because they put on a good performance of godliness, but they lack the very substance of it. They have all the knowledge of God, but their hearts are devoid of love for God and others. They glide around in their power robes of purity, but they're really like lions Hunting for people's praise, for respect, for power, for possession. But the reason why Jesus says watch out also is because, you know, every single one of us can fall into the same hypocritical trap as the scribes. And I've noticed it often happens like this. I mean, I know this can happen in workplaces. It's going to happen in other places. But I notice how it happens oftentimes in churches. Is that somebody may come to church. And in coming to church, they may genuinely fall in love with Jesus. Or maybe somebody is in church because they just grew up in church. Or maybe they came to church just because they, they, they like the people and they share common values with the people. But whatever reason, they come to church They build relationships, they get involved, they pick up responsibility, they discover and use their God-given gifts, they grow in knowledge, and all of that's great. Like, that's what church should be. They come and they feel valued and they feel loved and they feel important. Again, great. That's the way a healthy church should be. But there's a subtle twist that happens for some at that point. Because as we, we feel the love and the, and the value and the importance that other people in the church are giving us, we start to really like it. Really like it. People, you notice people are looking up to you. They're giving you position. They're, they're complimenting and encouraging you. Again, not bad things, but before you know it, the shift is we not only like it, but we feel like we need it. You guys see that? It's not bad to like it, but then we start to need it. And then subtly, instead of ministering and serving others in the church, outside the church, out of love for God and love for others, we start doing these things because we like the attention and praise it gives us. We say things like, oh, it's all for the glory of God. (laughs) 
when we're still and we're quiet, our minds are often calculating how it can be about us. And Jesus gives us, though, a few warning signs of when our hearts may be prone to falling in this hypocritical trap. First, we may be prone to falling in this hypocritical trap. Whether you have a position or not, we may be prone if first, if we feel like every time we're around others, we have to put on our best side. Just like the scribes had to put on their long white linen robes in public, do we feel like we have to do a full makeover before we can go out around people? Do we feel like people really know us? Or do we feel like we have to put on a front whenever we're around them? Are we deathly afraid that if they really knew us, they would reject us? Are we, are we willing to show our weaknesses, because we all have them, to each other and build honest, vulnerable relationships? Or do we got to put on that robe whenever we're around others? Second, in addition to showing our best side, when we're around people, do we find ourselves consistently ranking where we stand around them? For the religious leaders, they walked into a room, the first thing they looked for is their seats. Right? Where they sat, their status. When we enter a room, am I looking first for, okay, who can I go to to give me the most attention or who I can love? How I can promote myself or, or how I can lift somebody else up? Third, we may be in danger of falling into the hypocritical trap if we are consistently calculating in our relationships how what we can gain from others. See, in that day, it was, again, considered righteous to show hospitality to religious leaders and scribes. And oftentimes, poor widows would be the ones who would open their houses to the scribes. But Jesus says, you're not just going in their houses, you're devouring their houses. An English translation of that phrase, you're eating them out of house and home. <laughs> you're just taking without any concern of what their needs may be, and you're leaving them destitute in your wake. But I notice how, how, how subtle that can be in a lot of my relationships, that I can go up to somebody, and without even realizing it, all my mind is focused on is, how can I get something from this person right now? Fourth and last, and this one struck me hard. <laughs> we may be in danger of falling into a hypocritical trap if we are content for people to think we're godly, even if we aren't. That as long as people think we're godly, that's enough for us. See, to Jesus, the scribes' long prayers were nothing more than a show. They might as well be putting on Shakespeare, right? No difference to him. Because they prayed to impress people, not to show love to God. Does who we are in private with God match who we are in public with God? Do we feel we have to put on a show, a performance? Do those closest to us know a different person than other people do. 
And see, when we look at all of these, Jesus is saying, and if we notice any of these signs in our lives that we're living because we're trying to, trying to please people, we're seeing what we can gain from them, we're calculating where we rank, we're always trying to impress people. He says, if we're noticing any of that in our lives, watch out. Watch out. And the reason why he is doing this is because he's saying that once we start doing this, we may have a relationship with God and others, but really it's not about loving them, it's about us. And when our relationship with God and others is about us, we are never free to love. Like we said, everything about following Jesus is about him moving us toward learning to love God with everything we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the ultimate end. But if we're so busy in this life hunting from others for value, love, power, provision, we are unable to love them. We are, we are bound, striving in human strength. And we are looking to gain from people what we've already gained from God. And see, I've realized that anytime I find myself in this trap, I do it because I do not trust that what I have in Christ is enough. The divine preexistent God took on human flesh, became a servant, and died to remove my barrier of sin that he might call me his son. And I still seek the applause of human beings? Jesus, as we just sang, paid it all. But I still don't trust he's going to pay my bills? (laughs) Paul says that When we are in Christ, we are seated with him in heavenly places. Yet I still jockey for position in this world. Bottom line, if I seek the praise of people, power, possessions in this world, it's because I do not trust that Christ is enough. And if I do not trust him, I am never free to love him or others. And this is exactly why... the very beginning of a relationship with Jesus begins with faith. Because what is faith? Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that we are who he says we are. Faith is trust. So that when we, learn, when we place our faith in him, we are placing our trust in him. And as we learn to trust him, we are liberated and free to learn from him how to love God and others. Are you guys tracking with me so far? All right. All right, just making sure. But then let's get to that second question. All right, we talked about how we can often get sidetracked, but let's get to that second question. If we are to learn how to love God and love others, then what is necessary? What is that one thing necessary? See, when our total trust is in the God who loves us and gave himself for us, we are totally free to love God and others like he loves us. After Jesus put the scribes in the light, he then walks over to the temple treasury and has a seat. And as the the fat coins of the rich hit the the, the treasury chest and reverberated in there, Jesus instead notices a poor widow. 
Now, the fact that this widow is poor is in itself an indictment against the loveless religion of the scribes. She's Jewish like them. She's devout. Yet she's scraping by. And the reason why they're all there is they're all there to give their free will offerings and pay the temple tax. The temple tax was two shekels. The two coins she had was worth one four hundredth of two shekels. Like this woman, all she has, she gives, and it falls well short of everything that these this religious system required. The selfish, loveless religious system of the scribes laid an impossible financial burden on her back and offered no help to ease it. But despite how broken the religious system, despite how how messed up those who were supposed to be representing God failed to represent him, she still trusts God. And despite any brokenness of our religious systems, we can still trust God too. Because what's fascinating to me, what's amazing to me, is that she had two small copper coins, tiny to anybody else, but for her, those could have been her next meal. But she doesn't offer just one, she offers both. Total trust. That despite how the empty religion had failed her, she knew God would not. And I say that because I need to speak. Some of you in here, you have experienced church hurt. Or maybe some people who claimed to represent God grossly misrepresented him. Some who were supposed to love you like Jesus did not. And that leaves a, a wound. In many of us. But the one thing that I see in this is that just as Jesus saw this poor widow, he sees you. He knows the hurt you've experienced. But he invites you to trust him again. Because at the moment of trust, that's when he can begin to heal those wounds. And as Jesus looks at this poor widow, what amazes him is not the size of her gift, but the totality of her trust. And that's exactly what Jesus is looking for in us. When he sees this poor widow, he says, guys, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. You've got to see this, right? And he looks at them and he says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow She has put into the treasury more than all the others. See, they gave out of their wealth, meaning there was no lifestyle change required for them. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on, which can also be translated her whole life. And that even though her gift fell way short of human standards, Jesus wasn't looking for that because What reverberated in his heart was the totality of her trust. Because when Jesus looked at her, see, he knew he had that same trust in his heart toward his father. Because it it was that same trust in Jesus that would lead him to 
toward indescribable pain, suffering, and even death as he trusted that his father would raise him again from the dead to give new life to him and the world and crown him again as king of kings and lord of lords. And this is the same kind of trust that he calls for in us. But some of us, we look at our lives and our giftings and our resources and we're like, I mean, what could God do with a little contribution of my life? But God is saying, you can't imagine what I can do with a heart that trusts me. In the Old Testament, there's this book called 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel tells the the tale of two kings, King Saul and King David. And King Saul was a man who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, a man of natural talent. Yet, despite what people considered to be his large gift to God, God rejected him. Why? Because he cared more, he trusted more in what people said of him than what God said. And then there was David, this unassuming shepherd boy that despite all of his insufficiencies, He trusted in a big God, and he took him at his word. And despite all of his human limitations, God promised to David, he says, from you, a man after my own heart, a man who trusts me, I'm going to make an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. And it was exactly from the lineage or line of David that came the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus himself. You see, even though the the widow's gift fell way short of the temple tax, Jesus knows that anything we have to offer him is always going to fall way short of God's glory. He's not looking at the size of our gift, but the totality of our trust. See, our standing before God never depended upon what we brought him anyway. Our good deeds how many times we've been to church, how much money we give to the church. None of that matters for our standing before God. None of it. He's just simply asking, do we trust him by faith? For we are saved by the grace of God through faith in what Christ has done for us. See, the greatest gift of love we can give our God is our total trust. But have you ever thought about trust is actually something that we learn to do? How do we learn trust? And sometimes I I used to think of trust as like, I don't know, I'm going to sit here and just kind of wait for a divine feeling to just hit me, and then I'll trust God. Anybody else? Maybe it's just me. But in reality, trust is something that we learn to do as we take simple steps of obedience toward God. Now, for some of you, that step of trust or step of obedience might be your first one. There's some of you in here, you may have never given your life to Jesus. You've never committed or trusted your life to Jesus and committed to following in his way. Pastor David and I, I, we would love to talk to you after service because that comes with a lot of questions and we'd love to pray with you. Please come see us. We'd love to follow with you. Or if you're watching online, fill out the Connect card and we'll follow up with you that way. For a lot of others here, one of the best questions we can ask in this moment is, Lord, where do I struggle to trust you? 
Is it for our value, for our sense of importance, for, for our love, maybe for our money and provision? And when we identify that area, then saying, well, what would it look like to take a step of trust in that area? If you realize, man, I, I've been looking for love, and most of it is on social media. A simple step of obedience could be just take a break from social media for a while and instead fill that time reading about what, who God says you are and who he is. If you realize money is the area where you struggle to trust God, then look for a way that you can give out of love for God and others to the point when it makes you uncomfortable. Pastor, I really loved it when you were talking in the abstract, but now. <laughs> or if we realize, man, we're, all, we're consistently looking to others to give us a sense of respect or importance or value. Could we find a way to anonymously serve somebody else so that only you and God know? Or when we're around other people, can we look for little ways we can boost others up? Instead of ourselves. Again, just simple steps of obedience that by doing so, allow God to teach us how to trust him with the whole of our lives. And so when we take these steps, even though they're uncomfortable for us, trusting God's going to meet you there. And as we learn to trust, then we are free to give ourselves away to God and others, thus reflecting Jesus to our world. The greatest gift of love we can give our God is our total trust. Now, we're going to turn to communion. But as we prepare to take it, I'm going to pray, but then I'm going to give us a moment of silence. And that moment of silence is space for you guys to ask those two questions. One, Lord, where do I struggle to trust you? And then two, what step would you have me take in that area that I might learn to trust you more? I was praying about this for myself yesterday, and God showed something to me, and I got a follow-up this week. <laughs> like, like, the, the, he challenged me in a real personal way that, oh, okay, all right, all right. Because I, I realize, I'll just be vulnerable here, I realize that I often struggle to trust God with my time that there's going to be enough time to do everything that i got to do. And God says, all right, Kirk, I want you to spend extra time in prayer with me every day this week. Yes, Lord. <laughs> and when we do that, it actually confronts the area of distrust and gives God an opportunity to show us yet again that he is trustworthy. So let me lead us in prayer. And then I'm going to give us a moment of silence. If we can keep the kids outside for just a moment, I'll let them in um, after our moment of silence. But Lord, I pray that in this moment that you speak to our hearts and our minds. That you say whatever it is that you want to say to us. Reveal to us, Lord. Before we take this meal, are, are there any areas where we are struggling to trust you right now? And, and what is a step that you would have each of us take that we can grow in our trust of you? Go ahead.